Hi gang, Donna here. Today I had the pleasure of interviewing Tom Freeman. Tom's journey is pretty incredible. At the age of eight, his mother sat him down and told him the news that he was adopted. And when he asked why, she told him he was special. Something in the answer that she gave him didn't feel right. This led him on a long journey, a journey that would make him pick up a bottle and have a drink and then have several more. He takes us on his journey of how he found a sobriety, but not only found a sobriety at the age of 50, he ended up meeting his birth mother and had a pretty good story about what happened with his birth mother. Because not only did he meet his birth mother, he met his birth father and his two siblings, whole siblings, because his mother and his father ended up marrying. So it's a pretty incredible story and he is celebrating six years of sobriety. So I hope you give it a listen because there's some fascinating facts and details. Hi, Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, absolutely wonderful. It looks pretty sunny where you're at. <laughs> it is very sunny here, but it's always sunny in the desert. True, but it's also hot sometimes then too. <laughs> it, is definitely, it definitely gets warm. But uh, as I go into the fall season, um, the high, uh, the low 100s will uh, get back down to the freezing temperatures within a few months. So Wow, I'll pass on the hundreds. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, basically, when we when you reached out to me, we had a little bit of a introduction and part of your journey deals with adoption. Mm -hmm. um, so why don't you take us to that when you found out and how did you find out? Okay, um, great. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate no it. Um, I'm 52 years old and I was adopted at birth. I was actually born um, in the summer of 1969 and I was adopted seven weeks later. And right around eight years of age, I found out I was adopted. And being adopted um, was a new concept. I didn't know anyone that was adopted. Um, my parents, my loving parents um, had my older sister. Five years later, they adopted me. 18 months later, they had my sister. And then five years later, they had my other sister. So when I found out I was adopted, I don't know exactly how it came about. I know I was having some struggles in school. I was trying to figure out where I fit in. And while I looked somewhat similar to my family, there was still a slight difference. And I don't know exactly how we got to that point, but I remember my mom sitting me down on my bed and she told me I was adopted. And she did the best she could do. You know, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what does an eight-year-old say? Why? Right, right. Why? Um, she gave the answer that I was special and that I was a gift from God. The, my, my family, um, around this, I was about 10. I'm not adopted, but I found out my, um, cousins, their father passed. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you know, we're like, oh, uncle Raymond passed. And somehow it comes out at this point that my oldest cousin, Christine's been adopted. And then her two siblings were adopted as well. But mm -hmm. as a kid, you don't know and you don't have the concept. So I'm coming from the other side of it. I didn't understand. I'm like, so how did this happen? And it wasn't really 
explained like that to me. It was just kind of like, okay, but they're still your cousin. I understand. I understand. So right. go on. Well, that eight-year-old ended up uh, hearing your special and you're a gift from God. And not until many years later did I find out that that was actually the perfect answer. But that little, that little eight-year-old concocted a story. And that story created a path. And that path got me to where I'm at today with a whole lot of trials and tribulations. But I took that answer as deceit. I so took that answer as, why isn't someone being honest with me? Why aren't you telling me why I was really adopted? But you did you ultimately find out that answer many, many years later through a lot of different trials and tribulations before that, but you ultimately did find out that answer, did you not? I did. I did. Um, I have lived a full life. In fact, I lived my life um, almost in the James Dean model. I figured I'm going to go hard and I ain't never going to make 50. Well, um, I hit 50. <clears throat> and my 50s are significantly better than my 40s, which were better than my 30s, better than my 20s, et cetera. So what happened was over the course of time, the most powerful, meanest creature on the earth is another child. When children on a playground or children in the home, yeah. when, without adult supervision, kids can be mean. Yes. And whenever my sisters needed to win an argument, they reminded me I was adopted. Um, or when my classmates, um, um, anything came up or I raised my hand and, you know, we're talking about biology and things like that and family history and stuff like that. And I raised my hand and said, well, I don't know my family tree. I don't know this. Um, kids can be brutal. Yeah. Well, kids can be brutal. But sometimes like water off a duck's back, you can let that go. This little, this little boy couldn't let it go. So as I went through my teenage years, um, I started this path. And this path was, I'm going to let you go before you can let me go. In other words, I'm going to abandon you before you're going to abandon me. Well, this proved to be a disaster with regards to many areas of my life. Professionally, I would hold a role for two years and then I'd move on. Um, relationships, um, just a nightmare. Um, I thought I wanted certain things, but I was never truly happy and I didn't do it for the right reason. So married, divorce, married, divorce. But on August 7th, 2015, as my life was, was at what I thought at its lowest point, I chose to get sober. Okay. And, and I want to say something, what you're talking about the abandonment issue, I don't think that's just something, and I'm not trying to lessen what you went through because adoption is a lot different than divorce, but some kids from divorce experience that same thing about abandonment. It's not the same exact thing, but from my own personal experience, I know exactly that feeling because my dad was supposed to come get me. My dad didn't show up. Right. So, right. and I, like I said, I'm not, I'm not distancing. I'm, 
if anything, I can understand that feeling because it does. When I left my first husband, it was the choice of, well, he's eventually going to leave me anyway. So I'm going to cut this off before that happens. You're absolutely, you're absolutely accurate. I couldn't agree with you anymore. Um, I have two children, uh, two boys, they're 28 and 24. And I ultimately ended up getting divorced. Um, my wife left me. Um, right about the same time that I found my dad was going to leave me. He was, he was passing from cancer. Um, so here I was um, being abandoned again. And my wife left me the day I found out my dad's cancer came back. And I tried and tried and tried to keep that thing together. Um, I couldn't prevent my dad from passing, but I tried as hard as I could to keep this marriage together because this is, it was the way I was raised. You don't get divorced. Um, but here it happened again. And not until I found out later on in the last six years have I found out that a lot of this stuff that happened helped make me who I am, but a lot of the stuff that happened could have been avoided. But you're absolutely right. Um, when we got divorced, my boys were 10 and 14. And they felt abandoned. Yeah. I mean, I don't, my parents got divorced in the seventies. So kind of like the adoption thing, it wasn't that common at that moment. So, you know, here, here's some of my friends are talking about mom and dad. We went and did this with mom and dad, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there going, well, will I see my dad this weekend? Or, you know, what are we going to do this weekend? Oh, are we going to go watch him party? Cause my dad drank. So it was yeah. like, we, he would pick me up and we would go to his house. He'd have this big party. And then a lot of the times he would drive me back home. And yes, he was drunk driving, which once yeah. again, you go back to, and you're talking about your sobriety. So that's the reason I'm bringing this up. Um, when I look back at that, I'm like, how irresponsible of you. You, you love me, but yet you were putting me in harm. Right. Right. So it happened. It, it happened so often. I, I gave up counting. Um, but you had asked me a question earlier, and I, I don't remember exactly the question, but I think it's important for this conversation. Getting sober, getting sober is, was a key turning point in my life. And sobriety is not anything that I joke about. My 28-year-old um, has nine years of sobriety. Um, his story is different than my story. He's my son. I'm his father. Um, but his sobriety is his sobriety. My sobriety is my sobriety. I sit in the, the rooms um, of individuals who are healing or dealing with um, their own sobriety. And while there's similarities, there's no story that's the same. And what happened was, was when I got sober, I started to heal. And as I started to heal, I started to feel. And so what ultimately ended up happening was I thought August 7th, 2015 was the low point in my life. I filed for divorce again. I moved my business to another firm. And I thought... I was making wholesale changes, all the things you're not supposed to do when you get sober. And then I jumped right back into another relationship. All the things you're not supposed to do. Well, what happened was I was trying to just white knuckle my way through this. 
And then I found out about six months later that this was much bigger than me. And here I am curled up in the fetal position on a therapist's couch, crying uncontrollably, have no recollection of what was said, except you need to go away. You need to work on you. And three days later, I was in Tennessee. Now, at this time I was in California, but three days later, I'm on a plane to Tennessee and I have no recollection of getting there. I flew by myself. And next thing you know, I'm spending time working on me, not for my sobriety, not for any addiction issues, but the PTSD for that eight-year-old. And I think, I think that's something that most people, when we talk about PTSD, we think only that you've been in a battle, you've been mm -hmm. in a war. And the fact of the matter is PTSD can come from so many different life events. It can come from family events. It can come from work. No one ever really looks at it except that, and I'm not discounting going to war because that's a major tragedy, but our minds take us to battle so many times. And that's kind of what leads to addiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, whether it's abuse, uh, you know, and it's, it's just everywhere. And yes, mm -hmm. um, I remember when the, when the, the psychologist said, you have PTSD. I'm like, mm -hmm. My response is, I've never served. Um, and that's when I started to learn um, what post-traumatic stress disorder was. And that time there, I allowed myself for the first time in my adult life to let the process go and just to let go and just allow here I was, and I, I was shut off with communications from the world. I was with my pod. I was with, I was in different individual or group meetings every day for weeks on end. And what I found out that, and my mom had passed a year earlier, what I found out was that you're special. You're a gift from God. The answers that my mom had given me my entire life were not deceitful. They were perfect answers that I was special and that I was a gift from God to them. Yeah. And it's just looking at life through a different set of lenses. It's just taking the moment to just step outside of who I was. The world didn't revolve around me. Let's just look at it in a different light, so to speak. And from that point, it turned around. And see that that's something that, you know, therapy is, is wonderful for doing is because it can make you reframe your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we don't know. We don't usually do. We get caught up in the, dare I say, the spiral of the negative self-talk, the, the, the memories of the kid on the playground being, you know, you've had a bad day. Now that trigger has triggered you and that PTSD is now thriving. I had a conversation recently with one of my friends who was going on about her daughter that she gave up for adoption. Mm -hmm. And her grown daughter is not exactly acting the way she would like her to, to behave. Mm -hmm. And 
I stopped her and I said, I know you're not going to want to hear this. I said, but do you realize you're putting your expectations on her? And this is causing you to get riled up. Yeah. She's her own person. And I think that's, that's where a lot of this comes from is you, you know, if you think back to the eight-year-old, you expected something else, you expected a different answer. And so your expectations weren't met, which then sent you on this whole journey. If we stop back and stop and look at the expectations we have of ourselves, we might be nicer to ourselves instead of, I mean, our expectations, let's, let's just, let's just think about this for a second. Your expectations of yourself, are they based on you or are they based on what people have thought of you in the past, what they've expected of you in the past? Well, I can answer that with a story. So, but yeah, I won't. That's good. Um, well, here, let me, let, let, let me, uh, I had an incredible conversation yesterday, but I've got to give you the backstory first. So uh, August 7, 2015, I got sober. Roughly six months later, I hit rock bottom. When I came home, everything started to change. Snail's pace, but everything started to change. As I started to recover, I started to heal. And as I started to heal, I started to feel. If something felt good, I did it. If something didn't feel good, I stopped doing it. And my career, which had on the surface always been somewhat successful, was now starting to thrive. Um, I got out of a completely dysfunctional relationship I never should have got into. And, it was, and I started becoming more attractive to good people. But what ultimately ended up happening was I met this woman and this woman, like every other person walking the face of the earth, had her own issues, but she was more evolved than I was. She was just further along in her path than I was. And she knew my vulnerabilities. She knew the, the, the triggers, if you will. She knew the adoption was an issue for me because I'd always said, if I ever knew that my birth mother was sitting at that table right there, I would go over and I'd say, can I sit down and join you, share a meal, never telling you who I was. I just wanted to be able to see where did I get my eye color from? Where did I get my personality from? My smile, those types of things. And I'd pay your bill and I'd, I'd, I'd say goodbye. I don't, I'm not looking for another parent. Already got those. They were great. My parents were great. They still are great. They're just not with me anymore. I already got sisters. I didn't need any else. I just wanted to be able to sit there and figure out where I was from because I'm a parent too. And I've got my boys. I want to be able to find out a little bit about family history, things like that. Well, this woman who was in my life, Arlene, she has a gift. And that gift as a medium is she's able to see and feel things that my simple brain can't. Mm -hmm. And she knew the adoption issue weighed on me. And so in her nature, very lovingly along the way, told me it was going to be okay. Because one of the things I didn't tell you is every month, every week, however long it was my entire life, I'd you know, jump on Google or I'd you know, do some sort of research. How do I find my birth mother? 
Well, Arlene eventually gave me courage. I sat in a conference one day. In that conference, this guy who had this show on MTV for 10 years, the 100 things to do before you die. He ended up speaking. And when he got off the stage, I said, I've got the nine things on my top 10 list that I absolutely are going to do before I die. I was always afraid to put one on there. After listening to you today, I'm going to put it on as the number one. And I told him what I was going to do. And he says, great, tell me how it goes. Stay in touch with me. And I said, I'm going to find my birth mother. I made the decision at that point. Do you want to hear this story? Yeah. All right. Okay. So I go home. I fly home. I get home that Sunday night. I get onto Google. And instead of typing in the same search I've typed in hundreds of times before, the 23andMe, all that stuff didn't work. I type in, find my birth parents. Nice. Okay. And, and up pops a website birthparentfinder.com. Okay. I fill out the information, look at our lane, hit send, don't think anything of it. I've done this before. The next morning, the phone rings. This wonderful woman named Linda answers the phone. Is this Tom? I say, yeah. She goes, Tom, we got your information on the inquiry last night. I said, okay, great. Uh, at this point, I've taken this call before, and she goes, we can find your birth parents. And I said, you're the only person that's ever said that. What makes you think you can find my birth parents? And she goes, we have the technology that no one else has. We have the microfiche for every child that's been born in a hospital in the United States. Wow. Ever. And wow. I was like, whoa. And, I was like, and she goes, if you don't believe me, I'm going to send you some information. So she sends me the information. I said, all right, I'm going to get back to you. I'm a skeptic by nature, I think. I think at this time, I think I'm a skeptic by nature. And uh, the next morning I call her and I say, you know, I just, I, I, I looked at everything that you sent and I just don't know. Um, and she talks to me and I was like, ah, screw it. Let's do it. What do you need? And she goes, send me this, you know, and we'll get started. This was a Tuesday morning, okay. Tuesday morning. By Tuesday afternoon, they call me and they say, hey, Tom, yeah, you did 23andMe, right? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, great. They said, can you send us your top? And I was like, fourth connection is the best I got. And they said, send us the top 20. Like, okay. So I send it over. Don't think anything of it. In fact, Arlene and I didn't even talk about it that day after that. The next morning at 7.09 a.m., I'm sitting in my office. And the phone rings. The guy who runs this investigative firm. And he says, Tom, this is Jay. And I said, hi, Jay. And he goes, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah. And he goes, no, seriously. Are you sitting down? I said, yeah. And he goes, we found your birth mother. And I said, well, that was fast. And he's like, are you sitting down? And I was like, yeah, we've already been over this. And he goes, it doesn't end there. What happened was those crazy kids who gave me up in high school, thank you. They ended up falling in love and they got married three years later. They stayed married for 25 years. And I had a full brother and full sister this entire time 
that lived 20 minutes away from me. Wow. My entire young adult life. So you don't know how many times you may have run across them or. My younger brother went to the same all boys high school that I went to 14 years later. Um, But yeah. So this was a lot for me to handle. I'm sure. This was a lot. And it was, I, I called the boys, my boy's mom, who had been a part of this journey for a long time. I called Arlene. I called my older sister, not in that order. I mean, I called yeah. everyone in the right order. Um, but I let them know, hey, this is what's going on. And then everyone went to work and they spent the whole day. Oh, hey, I found this on Facebook. I found this here. I found this here. And, you know, and like, oh, this is great. No, oh, my God, you look just like your dad and all this stuff. And they're doing this. And I'm like, this is too much. This is too much. I always thought I'd have a birth mother. I knew that. Mm-hmm. Someone had to give birth to me, right? Yeah, yeah. I never expected that dad would be around. I never expected that they would have got married. And I never thought about, I was like, man, I got some half sibling somewhere out there in the world, probably, but whatever. So the investigator, and I talked frequently through the course of that day. I remember going home. I knew I wasn't going to be able to work. And I went home and one thing led to another. And the investigator says, I'm going to get in touch with your birth mother. Okay, great. Um, they get in touch with the birth mother. And here I'll fast forward. Um, on July 14th, a little over two years ago, On my 50th birthday, I walked up the front steps and met, hugged, had dinner, and spent the night at my biological mother's house. That had to be an an incredible gift. At least coming full circle for you. Two weeks later, I met my father. Two weeks after that, I met my brother and sister. Wow. Just yesterday, I had a conversation with my mom. Nice. And I've seen my mom a few times. I've seen my dad a lot. I've seen my brother and sister once. But my mom and I talked every day until we didn't. And six months in, it just shut off. Why? Is there guilt, you think? Yeah. And so we had a conversation yesterday, and this is why I shared this part of the story. I said, we were talking about something. And I said, all right, we're going to do this now. And she said, okay, let's do it. And I said, two years ago this November, you sent me an email. And you shut me out. Because... This was becoming too much for you to handle because my brother and sister weren't comfortable, specifically my sister (laughs) and probably my brother. And you had told me if I have to choose between these two and you, I'm going to choose them. And I said, I remember you telling me that. And I remember my sister saying, I have a real hard time with you because for 40 years, I was the oldest and I was the only one who gave mom and dad a grandchild and here you're the oldest and you've given them two and when she said that to me I'm like 
my response to her was, that's okay. I can be the middle child. No one likes the middle child. Just refer to me as the middle child. That's fine. You can have the honor. I don't care. I don't want anything. And so that was a silly, short conversation. But, you know, I said to my mom yesterday, I said, here's the deal. When you sent me that email, you abandoned me for the second time. I didn't have a choice the first time. I didn't have a choice the second time. And you said if you had to choose between so-and-so and so-and-so and and me, you would choose so-and-so. No parents should have to choose. No. I know what you were saying to me, but I never believed what you actually said until you sent me that email. And you proved that the guilt of you giving me up 50 years ago was too much, but I got to tell you, as much guilt as you had, and I cannot pretend to understand what you did or empathize or sympathize with what you did. I just don't know. I'll never be able to know. But you also have to understand there's no way possible you can understand what I've gone through. And I thank you each and every day for giving me up. I was raised in a loving family, a beautiful family. And I love them all dearly. Thank you. I'm not leaving them to come back. I don't need to be invited to Christmas. But don't send me an email or hang up the phone and shut me out again because you don't need to. I don't want anything. I wasn't expecting this. And so we had this conversation yesterday. You know what she said to me? What? You're right, and I'm truly sorry. That takes a a lot out of somebody to to say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she repeated it many times throughout the course of the conversation. She said, you're right, I don't have to choose. No. You're right, I didn't need to do that. It was just becoming so overwhelming to me, and I said, you and me both. I mean... It's interesting when people make someone choose, when people sit there and say, well, you have to choose between me or this other person. And I mean, it not only happens in situations like yours, but friendships and even relationships, you know, why do you have to choose? Why can't you, why can't you have a relationship with your mother that's separate from your siblings? If you don't want to be part with your siblings or they don't want to be part with you, you can still have that relationship with your mother. There shouldn't be a reason where you have to choose. It's funny you say that because I I said to her, I said, look, I've known you for two years and I get the feeling that um, you're the straw that stirs the drink. (laughs) The family goes as you go. And I liken this to the following. And I just had come up with it, but it, it made perfect sense to me. I don't know if it'll make sense to you and your listeners, but I said, Have you ever introduced a family? uh, Have you ever brought home a new dog to the family? Or someone's dog came over to the house and the young kids are apprehensive. They just don't know. But you as an adult, you get down on one knee and you pet the dog and you give the dog cuddles and you're showing the children that it's okay, that the dog doesn't bite, that the dog is just here to bring joy. Yeah. You're, you have to show 
my brother and sister that I don't bite. Yeah. And she said, you're right. Because I don't want anything from them, need anything from them, except for, hey, this is sort of cool. Not many people have an opportunity like this. We can write a pretty cool, happy ending to this story. Let's give it a whirl. And I mean, for you, it also helps you and your your children to know the biological history, health history. That's something that most people, I lost my mother when I was 22 and I was, I didn't go and check her medical records or anything else. So it's like, okay, I don't know. I don't know her health history, but now because you have this connection, that's another good thing for you. You know, your parents' health history now, which seems to be the sum, but. Oh, it's, it's, it it became an issue for my mom and I, my dad was on on his deathbed. He survived it, but he was on his deathbed um, shortly before my 30th birthday. And I remember sitting in the hospital room with my mom being like, mom, come on, for the love of God, will you just please give me anything and everything on the adoption? I've got to know I've got small children. Yeah, I've got to know. I want to know. I don't want to get in contact with them. I love you, mom. But if you got anything, can you give it to me? And on my 30th birthday, in a very awkward moment, she gave me some information, which didn't tell me really anything. But after my mom passed, um, I, uh, my older sister said I was going through mom's stuff and I found a box and this box is for you. And she gave me this box. And in that box was everything that I had been searching for my entire life including the baby book for who was taking care of me for those seven weeks. Yeah. You know, logging and he, he had two bottles today or three bottles or he smiled today, you know, just logging it all down yeah. as, a, as a parent does. But in this case, it was some caregivers that were doing this for me. And it just brought incredible amount of emotions to me, but my boys still haven't met my biological family two plus years in, they haven't met. They're like, dad, we're gonna just let you do this. You figure out if this is something, because remember going back to your point earlier about the abandonment, I still mm-hmm. got some scar tissue there oh, when yeah. their mom and I divorced. Yeah. <clears throat> um, that they're like, hey, you, we'll go as you go, but you'll tell us when it's safe. Um, yeah. But the, here's the funny thing. The last time you went to a new doctor, you remember that? Mm-hmm. Arrive 15, 20 minutes early because we have some paperwork for you to fill out. It yeah. takes me all of five minutes to fill that out because I always get to put a big line through it saying adopted. I don't ever have to write the family history because I just don't know it. Now I have to write it because <laughs> now I know it. Um, yeah. But it is it is funny um, how um, society looks at me um for years with the adoption i I, i'm a smart ass by by trade but uh people look at me and i'd say yeah i'm adopted (gasps) you're adopted yeah and i I would have some smart ass comment like yeah what did i levitate i mean really i'm just (laughs) like you and everyone else i mean but it's just how society you know whether you're in recovery Mm -hmm. whether you've been abused 
whether you are come back from the war, whether you're adopted. And I'm not saying all those are equal. I mean, no, but. Should, but, but it's like, really? Come on. I'm just a, a 52 year old man who's lived a little. My, my, my hot button issue for about the last year is widow. Um, mm-hmm. Because I'm in my fifties, but I'm in my early fifties and you know, I've lost my husband and it's like, okay, I'm sorry. Back, that's okay. It's been a year. And while I loved him dearly, he's in a better place because he had a lot of health issues. Um, but going back to the doctor's office, because mm-hmm. my doctor happened to move offices during all this. And so I'm there and the girl's like, okay, so marital status. And I'm like, and I thought back to being divorced. And I'm like, when I was divorced, I just said I was single. It didn't matter. It was nobody else's business. Unless right. I'm dating you, there's really nobody else's business to know this. Right. And she, I said, I'm widowed, but I don't like that word. She goes, all right, we'll put single. I'm like, thank you. Because the problem is, you know, certain things like your taxes, your car insurance, now you're labeled that way. So just like yeah. your medical records. Hey, I'm adopted. Okay. So I'm sure that was a great question for your doctor. So, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like my, when my mom, cause my mom committed suicide, you know, how'd your mom die? It took me a long time to get comfortable with writing suicide because, you know, right. of course this opens up the whole can of worms. Yep. So. Yep. Yep. Well, what would society do if they couldn't affix a label to us? So, exactly. Yeah, I've got a few of them. Yeah. I'm a California refugee because I moved to Vegas. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. I'm adopted. Um, I'm a white male. Um, I, 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 the list go on and on. Yeah, uh, I mean that's we, society has to put us into these little boxes, and I think that's mm-hmm. the only reason they do that is because it's easier to deal with you then. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. easier to divide us. It's easier to just separate us other than, than just saying, hey, guess what? I'm human. Yeah. 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 So, you know, let, let's go back to your sobriety. Or excuse me, before your sobriety. Okay. So when did this, when did you find yourself starting to go down this path of becoming an alcoholic? It's funny. Um, I didn't. Um, I started drinking in my early teenage years. Um, I grew up, uh, and you know, I, I, I don't profess to be an expert, um, but I do know that there's a little bit of nature and a little bit of nurture. Um, I found out when I met my biological folks that, yeah, alcoholism definitely runs in the family, but it runs in the family on my adopted family side too. I mean, it, we grew up in an, era, in an era where at the end of the day, you came home and you had a drink or you had two dr- drinks. You know what I'm talking about, right? I grew, uh, up in New, I grew up in New Orleans and I can tell you for a fact, I was in bars before I was 10 years old because yeah, my grandfather yeah. used to drink. So I, yeah. I, I saw bars before I was 10 years old. I wasn't drinking, mind you, but you know, yeah. I was around it. So I never called myself self an alcoholic. Um, but if I look back on it, I would be, if I had to label myself, I would be labeled a high functioning alcoholic because I drank all day, but I never got belligerent. Mm-hmm. Um, I always had a nice little buzz going, um, but I drank all day my entire life. But when my mom passed, 
roughly six months before I got sober, I couldn't control it anymore. That's when I would have the occasional person say, hey, Tom, um, you okay? Um, about the year prior to me getting sober, um, I had one guy that I was working with say, hey, you know what? I think you need some help. Um, I'll run your practice for you. Um, why don't you just go do a little 30-day stint? Um, I've, I have other people um, put their arm around me and say, you okay, brother? Things like that. Um, my personality was such that I wouldn't have taken that help and I would have shunned you for accusing me of something. Um, but I was a very successful individual on the surface. I, I, had, done, I had done well, um, played golf 150 times a year. But what I did was I worked society. I worked my environment. I'd play golf with you in the morning, um, drinking the whole time. I'd go in and have lunch, and then I'd go play golf in the afternoon with a different set of folks, and they didn't know that I had been drinking earlier. And the folks in the morning didn't know that I was going to be drinking in the afternoon, so I would just change my environment. I'd go to one lunch place for work and have some drinks and go to a different place for happy hour. Um, and then I'd come home and have some drinks, and no one, you know, no one was the wiser, or mm -hmm. at least I, or at least I thought, and I never ended up uh, with DUIs or anything like that. I didn't run afoul of the law. Um, I just was a high functioning alcoholic until I wasn't. Yeah, I mean, my my dad could he could get quite wasted, mm -hmm. and. Then, you know, the next time I see him, he's completely sober and doesn't have a drink all day. So, I mean, I would say, yes, he was a high-functioning high alcoholic as well because he was a fireman. He, so he would be sober while he was on duty. And then his, his garage that he owned became Don's Garage and Social Club. Yeah. So he, you know, as soon as the shop was closed up, customers were bringing, because this is New Orleans, customers are bringing booze. He's having a good time. Yeah. So... You know, I, I get that. I think for me personally, because I was around that so much and I couldn't stand the smell of beer, I, I really just couldn't stand the smell of it. For me, it became when I would go to a club, I would go before cover or sometimes I'd pay cover and I'd drink water all night, maybe have one drink if it was required. And then I dance on a speaker or dance by myself. I wasn't there to, to drink. I was there right. just to have fun. But right. I think going back to nurture versus nature. Yeah. I look at my, my half sister and her mother was a, an alcoholic and my dad was an alcoholic and she, she liked to drink when she was younger. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was just like, I don't want that. I took my mom's route, which was food. So yeah. we, we all find some way to comfort ourselves. So did your wives, you know, did your wives ever say, Hey, you might want to slow down a bit. I'm or sure did they did but you weren't really listening. No, I mean, I remember leaving the golf course once and my second wife says, hey, I found a house. And she says, can you come look at it? And I said, I really just don't want to. If you want it, why don't we just get it? And she goes, we can't operate like that. So I went over, looked at the house, wrote a check and went back to the golf course. Wow. Well, 
that golf course, that country club, if you will, was so important to me because I didn't dance on the speaker to have fun. I danced on the speaker to drink. So I took the social area of the golf course, the outdoor fire pit and everything. Mm -hmm. And I actually took pictures of it, met with the people that designed it and had them put it in my backyard. Wow. Okay. So when I bought that house, I actually replicated that same area in my backyard. That should have been an indicator that um, my priorities weren't in alignment. Um, But uh, I was unwilling to listen. Did your kids ever say anything to you? No. No. I I got to a point where I actually said to my dad, you know, I'm like, dad, because before before he started hanging out with my um, half-sister's mom, you know, he would take me to see Star Wars and I was perfectly okay with going to see Star Wars or doing other things. And once they started hanging out besides fishing after they got together and moved out of, out of the French Quarter, it became good time, good time party. Right. And I remember asking him one time, it's like, hey, dad, do you think, and he was sober when I asked, I'm like, do you think we can just hang out, you and I again? And he's like, what's the matter? Don't like my friends. I mean, he snapped at me like, I said, you know, the worst thing in the world. And I still remember that to this day. And I was about, I guess, about 11. Right. And yeah, it just, it yeah. was one of those things where it's like, at the time, his partying meant everything to him. Well, you asked me a very important question. Did my kids say anything? And yeah. I don't believe they did. But remember, my oldest has nine years of sobriety and I have yeah. six. So they didn't say anything because I gave them permission. Yeah. And so that's something I have to live with. How was it when, I mean, okay, so your son's got more, a longer sobriety history than you do. Was he partially responsible for getting you sober? No, not at all. My older son and I, um, we had, we've had an on again, off again. He made me a grandfather this past spring, and that was that brought us together again. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that we're never off again. And uh, there's a lot of scar tissue there. All of it I put there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't blame him for him pulling away the whole detached with love. I don't blame him for that. Um, but that's going to be a time thing. Well, and the one thing I've, I've learned as far as like with my dad and even my mom, even though she's been gone for so long, I look back and I go, you know, you have to step back and look at their history. And for you, your history is very, very split because you knew this life with one set of parents and now, you know, the history of the other parents. And even with them giving you up for adoption, you kind of have to look back and say, okay, I forgive you guys, you know, because otherwise that eats at you too. And you have to accept like with your birth parent, not your birth parents, but your other parents that however they raised you, they learn lessons from their parents mm-hmm. in raising. And I think that's where we kind of get lost in society. We look at our parents and, and we may blame our parents, but we don't look at them as human beings. Right, right. So if your son can look at you, as a flawed human, 
He's seeing the flaws and I don't have any problems uh, letting him know um, as often as possible. Hey, this is something I'm working on. I don't try to, you know, in order to be able to keep that high functioning lifestyle, uh, that lifestyle together, you have to be a control freak to some degree. You have to manipulate that environment. And I can't do that. I don't manipulate anything anymore. What What's interesting is that you say to be that high functioning, you had to manipulate things. One of the reasons why I, I mean, I can say, yes, I've, I've been drunk a handful of times, but one of the reasons why I didn't like being drunk was because I didn't like the feeling of not being in control. Right. right. So I find that interesting that for you, it was about control somewhat. I'm not saying I had control necessarily when I was drinking, <laughs> yeah. um, but I thought I did. Yeah. And I controlled my environment in such a way there was not. Um, it was, uh, here, here's an example. So I was diagnosed with celiac disease, which means I can't eat really rye, wheat, oats, barley, grains. Mm -hmm. So, um, people would say, Hey, let's go grab a quick lunch. I said, okay, great. Um, uh, but I have celiac, so I can't go to McDonald's or Burger King or any of those places. Why don't we just go to this restaurant down the street? Well, I knew that restaurant had a bar. Oh, Hey, we're here. Why don't we just have a quick drink? And so I just manipulated things like that. Um, anytime we went on vacation, it would be, oh, look at this. Look at this special deal on an all-inclusive. Well, all-inclusive or flying first class, anything like that. I won. Yeah. I yeah. won big time because the house lost. Yeah. Because I was going to get my money's worth. Um, now, it doesn't work like that. Well, I have a question about, you know, with celiac disease, then you're limited to certain things you can drink, aren't you? I mean, oh, yes, yeah. because it's totally. grain alcohol and, and yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was simple. Um, okay. That was that was that was simple. I just drank. Uh, I was always a whiskey bourbon guy. And okay. uh, when they said you can't drink beer, I'm like, oh, shucks. So now I'll have a maker's um, on the rocks um, and, and while someone's sipping their beer after a cold round. Now there's a difference between quenching your thirst and having a maker's. You know, a Glen Livet doesn't quench your thirst. Yeah. You know, a, you know, a, a beer quenches your thirst. So I just manipulated the environment. So looking back, do you... Do you regret going on that journey? Do you regret those years of just having fun? Dare I say, even though it wasn't necessarily having fun? It's funny. I was uh, Arlene and I we were talking about that this morning. That I told her I was going to come on your podcast, and she said, "What is your answer?" And I said, "It all depends on how the question is posed. If I had a chance to do my life over again." and do it differently, would I? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. Would I want to lose a big, would I, would I give up the last six years? No, no. The last six years haven't been all Hollywood ending. 
it's been a lot of tears and a lot of work. Would I change those last six years? No, I don't think so. But that story hasn't been told yet. Um, do I live with regret? I have this saying that I tell people all the time. I, you know, I, I don't lie. From a controlling, manipulative person, I don't lie. Someone says, that's not what you said. Yeah, that is actually what I said. I promise you, I do not lie. I do not manipulate. Um, and if I put my head on my pillow, I can fall asleep like that because I know that if I needed to apologize, I did. I fall asleep faster than anyone you have ever met because I don't have any regrets on yesterday. And I'm prepared for tomorrow, but for the first time in my life, I'm living the hell out of my today. I always used to concentrate on tomorrow, didn't give two craps about yesterday and completely overlooked today. And it's that seismic shift, if you will, that has allowed me the freedom to be able to realize who I am. Now, if I say I would do it all over again, that's almost as if I, I don't want that eraser there. And I know you're not giving me that power to just wipe that all out, but I, I can't help but think that that's actually making me who I am today. Well, and, and see, I really wasn't necessarily saying about you doing your whole life over. What I was saying more is, if you knew what you knew now, would you go back and meet your birth parents again? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And... Would you, if you knew what you knew now, would you have maybe toned down the drinking? I'm not going to say you would have given it up because that is, yes, that is true. And I will stand by that in anything. Somebody once told me, actually a couple of people, well, I can't believe you've done all this thing, done all these things and been through all that stuff and you've survived and you're not crazy. Well, that's, there's two reasons I, I go back to this. Number one, I made it through. It was my life. It didn't seem out of, out of ordinary because it's your life. You relate to your life. Secondly, because of my experience, I'm able to do this. I'm able to talk yeah. to you and understand when you tell me you feel you felt abandoned. I understand that feeling. So. Yeah. So let me go back to the first part of that question. Um, I'm really glad that I didn't find my parents earlier. I'm really, really grateful I didn't find my parents when I was still drinking. Yeah. Um, I am, for those that have been with me on my journey, those that have known me more than six years ago to now, um, I'm unrecognizable. I'm really grateful that when I met my biological family, I had both feet firmly on the ground. Um, if the second part of the question is, if I could go back, would I have toned it down? Hell yeah. I mean, hell yeah. I, <laughs> I would love <clears throat> to be able to have a nice, nice crystal glass with one beautiful ice cube in it with just the perfect, perfect bourbon in it. I would love that. 
And I'd love to sip it with you right now. I would love I, that. I can't have just one. Exactly. Exactly. And so in my and so people ask me all the time, are you going to drink again? And my answer is, I don't know. But right now, and for anybody listening to this, my answer is, I don't know. But there's no way today I'm willing to give up what I have. And here, here's another question for you. So how, for you being sober, how hard is it being around others when they're drinking? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. The only thing is, so I, I so Arlene is a normie. We call them normies. Those that can drink. Um, I'm one that, you know, I probably shouldn't call them a normie, but that's what we call them in the room. I've heard, I've heard the term uh, before. Yeah. So it's, it's just another label because I'm normal. Um, I'm just different. And so, um, she's the only normie I've been with in sobriety. And so um, the first time that we kissed um, or second time or third time, whatever it was, um, I said, here's the deal. Um, Let's just, can we just do me a favor? Let's not take a sip and then kiss me. Okay. Okay. Um, it's those types of things. And so she's like, oh my God, I never even thought about that. And she goes, do I have to brush my teeth every time before I kiss you after I have a drink? I goes, no, 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 you don't have to do that. She goes, do I have to rinse? Like, no, you don't have to do that. Just let it get down your throat. And so, because um, I just don't want to taste it. As a writer, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, as a writer, I have wondered that. I have wondered that if if someone isn't a recovered alcoholic, if they're kissing somebody or dating somebody that has drinks, you know, can you, I mean, does that, when you're kissing somebody, you can taste it. So you can, taste it, you can smell it. Yeah. 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 So to be around, so, so to be around people, no, I actually, um, against everyone's, uh, uh, advice, um, my first week of sobriety, I went into a restaurant and knowing full well that there was a bar and I sat on the bar side, I just put my back to the bar. Okay. Um, I needed to, because I know in my, um, career, I am in a social environment a lot of the time. So I need to learn how to be able to interact inside an environment that would potentially make me uncomfortable. Um, I've eventually got to the spot where I, if you and I sat down and you said, hey, let's go have a sandwich. And the only the only place we could sit is at the bar and I'm going to be facing the wall, the shelves, the TVs, mm-hmm. all the you, know, you and I could sit there and I'd be completely fine. In fact, what I would do is I would sit there right next to you and I'd be like, that's what I used to drink, but I choose not to drink that anymore. And that's my way of saying no. And so I'm not manipulating, I'm not controlling, I've just adapted to my environment. So I don't have any issues going to a ball game or a concert. There's alcohol in my house right now. Um, I'm completely fine with it. I'm not tempted by it often. And when I am, I let someone know. So for those who are watching and listening to this, one of my defenses is I let someone know. And it's generally my boys or Arlene saying, Hey, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to take a, uh, I'm going to take a minute. And they know 
Um, I'm just going to remove myself from the situation for a minute. There's something that's awkward. Yeah. So. I mean, it, it's a it's a different way of life for you. I know it has to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, as we get older, then this is it's related, but it's not related. So as as you're getting older, you know, aches and pains creep in. Some people use alcohol as medication. Do you have an issue? You know, my dad had hurt his back on his job. And, you know, here's my dad to just say no talk to me at 20, 20 years old. Um, don't try drugs. I've tried them all. They're not good for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then as an in my 40s, he came clean and told me he had a Percocet addiction. Yeah. So I guess my question is marijuana is marijuana is legal now. And, you know, if you ever hurt yourself, do you have a problem with the or the fear of becoming addicted to another substance? Yeah. So I met with the surgeon um, today's Friday. I met with the surgeon on Wednesday and we scheduled a major surgery for me in October. Um, my doctors do not know until they need to know that I'm a recovering, I'm in recovery. Um, I immediately told Arlene, I said, you're gonna hold my medication. They're going to prescribe for me things that are going to make me feel very good. Um, We're going to talk to the doctor, find out how long I need this for, and then how quickly I can get to over-the-counter. I am not in the camp that I need to white knuckle everything. And what I mean by that is you're given medication so that you can have some sort of relief and that relief allows your body to heal. If I don't get any relief, I'm retarding the the healing process. So um, I will let my sponsor know. And I, and, and you know, I'm not in meetings every day. I go to a meeting once a week on a Zoom call um, just to make sure. And I have a rule for myself. And that is, if I say, gosh, I haven't been in a meeting in a while, I go into a meeting the next morning. So I can go once, two, three times a week, or I can go once every two weeks. But I know what I have to do. And that is, I let someone close to me know just here, I'm prepared. You've got the meds. I'm going to ask for the meds. You're going to give them to me. I know I need to heal, but we're only going to do this for two or three days until I can actually recover. And then I let my sponsor know, and he'll tell me the same thing. Um, But when my son got sober, he was 19, and he um, had been diagnosed with celiac, and they did a colonoscopy. And he decided to do it without pain meds. Okay. And without going under. Okay. And he thought that, you know what, I, I want to protect my sobriety. I don't want to go under general anesthesia. That you don't want to be awake during a colonoscopy. I woke up during mine. Yeah, you don't want to be awake. <laughs> and so he was awake the entire time. And oh. uh, and so we now know that we don't need to do that. The medication is there for a reason, but we don't dispense our own medication. Right. And you're gonna have different people with different, you know, I don't take, uh, I'll take an Advil 
because I'm having surgery, I'm dealing with something. And so I'll take an Advil, but I don't, I don't even take vitamins. I just don't like putting things in my body. I'm, I'm as pretty clean outside of Skittles. Um, I'm pretty, as pretty clean as you could be. And, and that's the thing. Everybody's got their own thing. I had a contractor mm-hmm. friend who had gotten, you know, he was very picky. I mean, he, he was recovered alcoholic and he would not, he would even get fries without salt. I mean, he was that meticulous about things. And he got, he was coming home from work one day and this woman hit him head on. He survived, but he had a lot of injuries. And I talked to his wife and he would not take pain pills because of his addiction. So I understand that. I get it. And I'm glad you have a plan already in place because that's smart. It's very smart. yeah, and you know, thank you. I appreciate that. You had asked me a question earlier. I mean, you know, I moved from California. I spent 50 years in California. I had a 30 year sentence in the Bay Area and I served 20 in Orange County. And during COVID, I boogied out and I lived just outside of Vegas. I couldn't look right outside my window and see the strip. Yeah. And so people are like, wait a second, you're a recovering yeah. alcoholic, um, you're an addict. Um, why are you in Las Vegas? because Vegas is really cool when you're sober. We have unbelievable shows everywhere. Some of the finest restaurants in the world, golf everywhere we look. And I can walk into a casino. I know I don't, I can't gamble because I don't do anything in moderation. Yeah. Um, I, golf is in moderation, but I go into the casinos. I can be around all the people and I'm like, yeah, yeah, good luck. I know your paycheck is being sucked up right here. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm going to go have a good meal um, or I'm going to go see a nice show. And so I'm in that environment all the time and I'm okay with it because I've got that my feet are on the ground, but I'm keenly aware if I left this call with you right now and I had nothing going on this afternoon and I decided to go into a casino by myself it's a flip of a coin mm-hmm. it's so a tr- don't go don't don't go into a casino by yourself tom it, it's a, it's that trigger i mean I, i've talked to several people on the podcast and you know you think you have you know you have your mental health all fixed and and that i am self-assured i am doing good my self-esteem is high and then something can happen and that hamster wheel of negativity will start and you are going down. Yeah. And that's yeah. the same thing. It, uh, people are like, cause I've said it, I said, you know, self-esteem and, and those mental health issues, your traumas from the past are an addiction. You yeah. have had them with you for so long. And people look at me kind of like I'm crazy about that, but it's true. They've been yeah. with you for so long that one thing welcomes you back. It's like picking out a relationship and you sit there and you realize after a while, you start looking at this person and you're like, well, they do remind me of. Right, right. And that can be with friends. That can be with anything. I mean, you can look at this and go, well, wait a second. She reminds me or he reminds me of. Well, that that's that's important. I play, I, I belong to a country club. I played on a golf team um, for eight years. And I did the same thing every Friday, Saturday, Sunday with the same group of guys. And... On July 13th, the day before my 50th birthday, I had a huge party at the club and we celebrated my 50th birthday. The next day I went and met my biological mother 
and I left the club. I left the club because I knew that I wasn't long for, I, I knew I had already stopped playing golf all the time. I'd already pulled back. And I knew that every time I stepped foot on that golf course, I was reminded of, oh God, I remember that day. Or yeah. oh, I remember that drink. Or I remember what I did with that guy. And I had to remove myself from there. And it was a difficult decision. And it's a great social experiment because you don't realize who your real friends are until you get into a situation like that. And I moved to the Las Vegas area a year ago next, a year ago tomorrow, actually. And I haven't heard from any of those people in a year. Wow. So they weren't my real friends. And, and that's the thing, certain life events, whether it be moving, death, whatever, you you see, you really do see who is there for you. Yep. Yep. And, and it makes you step back and, and really look at your life and go, okay, so I know who my true friends are. And yep. I know who, you know, was there for that. Yeah. Which, yep. you know, let's be honest, as long as you have people that support you, your son, Arlene, and any of your friends that still have remained your friends through this time, you know that they're the real deal and they're going to be here for you. And I thank them regularly. It, it's always good to appreciate your friends. It is. Yeah. So where do you see yourself in the next five years? I mean, what do you hope to achieve in the next five years? What did one. Arlene and I will be married. Um, we are very happy um, together. Um, we have a loving family. Hopefully my, I'm a grandparent again. Hopefully my youngest son has found someone that he can walk through life with. Um, if he hasn't, he hasn't. Um, my career is going to take me where my career is going to take me. I'm, uh, I'm in the perfect career doing what it is I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm successful at it. Um, I will have explored new areas domestically and abroad. Um, I'll be financially secure. My golf will be because I enjoy the game of golf. Um, I will be sober. I will continue to grow that relationship with my uh, biological mother, my biological father. And maybe my biological brother and sister. I'll continue to support and love my three sisters. I will still be playing fantasy football for that. That will be year 34. The same group of guys have been doing it together. For, mm -hmm. That'll be 34 years, five years from now. Um, I'm going to keep experiencing the hell out of my todays. Um, I will have done a TED Talk. My book will have been written. And my biggest decision will be, do I leave my career and walk around this earth, helping to impact people with this story, letting them know that life is about a choice and we only get one real shot at this thing. Sure. Very so true. We, we might as well enjoy it. We might as well 
put the right foods inside of our body, even though the other ones taste so good. Um, we should get sleep. Um, we should really avoid um, the news mm-hmm. um, or maybe watch the news, but you don't have to choose a side. Um, I think that if we all took the opportunity to just realize what was actually important, our homes, our communities, our cities, states, our country would be a whole lot better off. It would be. So I don't def- have a. I don't have a lot going on no. in five years, but I do. No. I do plan on changing the world. So, what is your book going to be about? Are you going to tell your adoption story, or is it about your sobriety? What What is your book going to be about, or is it fiction? No, my book will be about what we talked about today. My book will be that that inner child um, has a voice, but needs needs the opportunity to be able to experience and um, learn from his or her mistakes. Um, But also life is filled with second chances. And I was afforded probably many second chances along the way. And when I finally mustered up the courage to take advantage of one, it was life-changing for me. And if anybody can experience any part of what I've been able to experience the last six years, you win. I'm filled with gratitude. Well, the one thing you said about the inner child, I mean, we were we were raised in that generation of children should be seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's a lesson that of finding your voice. And that's a hard thing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that you had the courage and the strength to find your voice. Thank um, you. Is there anything you want to add before we sign off? I don't think so. I've really enjoyed the conversation today. You've been uh, pleasant to uh, share with and thank you for taking such an interest in me and, and who I am. And I hope my hope is that if one person um, takes one person who listens to this takes the opportunity to impact um, their todays, um, then it will have been time well spent. Thanks, guys, for tuning in to the Better Two podcast. Your listenership is greatly appreciated. If you like what you hear, remember to hit subscribe. We also have our videos on YouTube. They usually post the same day as the podcast, and you should check it out. If you have a question or you would like to be a guest on the show, please drop me an email, and I'll be glad to talk to you about it. The email is Donna, D-A-U-N-A, at thebetter2podcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and catch you next time.